Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Joining us today, we have Dr. Pranima Hernandez. Are you there? Yes, I am. Hi. Hi. Thank you for joining us today. I'm so excited to have you. Do you mind starting us off by giving an introduction for our listeners? Absolutely. First of all, thank you so much uh, for having me on this. I think I might have... um, uh, energetically wished you uh, to have me on. So again, thank you. Um, <laughs> I was, I was, I, I, because I follow your show and I always thought to myself, I wonder, it, it would be great to be on Amanda's podcast. And I think I must have just wished a little harder. Um, but uh, I was born, raised in India and I moved to United States in 1986. Yes, I am dating myself a little bit. Uh, my parents really encourage education, especially my father. He was um, a major influence on my life and had such a growth mindset that he just wanted me to travel and um, get to the United States and follow uh, whatever I chose to learn. And so I am here and I have been learning since then. I joined the program here at Columbia University to study pediatric dentistry. And um, I did that for a couple of years. And in the meantime, I had joined a master's program uh, of science. And it was, again, through the dental school. So I came in duly trained. After I completed that part of my education, the school asked me to stay on. It was such an honor to serve as an assistant professor for many years. And um, after which, I decided to get new experiences and and go into full-time clinical practice. And um, around that time, um, when I was in full-time clinical practice, uh, my son, Narayan, was born. He was born prematurely and was in the hospital for, I think, six months straight. And um, that completely uh, changed my life. Um, About 18 months after uh, taking care of Narayan in the home, at that time I had quit dentistry and had become his full-time provider. So um, my daughter Sophia was born 18 months after Narayan's birth. And um, around that time, I had decided that it had become extremely difficult to practice dentistry with two children, with Narayan needing a lot lot more than um, just simple uh, raising a child, and I quit dentistry and became a full-time mother and a provider for both my children. Um, About five years of doing that, I got a phone call uh, one day, and I was changing Narayan's diaper. Um, He was still in diapers. We were toilet training him, and I got a phone call from a neighboring hospital asking to speak to Dr. Hernandez. And in those five years, um, honestly, no one had ever asked me um, as a doctor or I had not been referred to one uh, as one. So I um, was a little surprised. I told them I was busy and that I would call them. And I did. And it was for a job interview. I went on to take that job and it was an amazing opportunity at a local hospital uh, with a craniofacial team. And when I got back into uh, dentistry slowly, I realized that my work was very different, especially with children with special needs. Um, And I needed to find out why it was different. And what I realized is there was a lot of influence 
from Narayan's education uh, related services as well as behavioral that I was bringing into clinical practice. Um, and from there on, um, you can obviously navigate me better during our conversation. I joined a um, master's program in behavior analysis at Caldwell in New Jersey. Um, there were six long years of night school education and um, summer school, and I got an excellent education and a master's degree in applied behavior analysis. So after my education, I was able to utilize so many of the procedures and incorporate them in my work in the practice. About five years, uh, about four or five years ago, I didn't feel that great. Just felt fatigued overall, and I think just my overall life, work, practice took uh, a toll on my personal health. And um, to make a long story short, um, there was really nothing diagnosable there. And what really helped me bring myself back to health was um, engaging in uh, lifestyle factors. And this is what brought me back now, and I'm moving towards a certification in functional medicine uh, to better understand the human body and influences of lifestyle factors. A very long introduction. You can cut it short, Amanda, later. No, I wouldn't cut out a thing. I think it's incredibly um, difficult to summarize one's life into the intro to a podcast. But as I hear your journey, I, I am thinking a thousand thoughts. I'm thinking, first off, like the journey moving from India to the United States, the pursuit for education, you definitely took that seriously. You know, says somebody who's also spent a lot of time in school to another person. But what a, what a path. You know, from, from dentistry, you know, working with the pediatric sector, your own children. And so what I heard you say was that time away really shaped your, your practices once you returned into um, working as a, as a hospital. Could you, could you talk a little bit about, like you said, something just didn't quite, it wasn't matching up or you were bringing in techniques. Can you give some examples of what that looked like? Absolutely. So first of all, it, it, it was really hard to recap because, you know, it, it, it's much easier when there's one discipline that we're focusing on. Uh, the way I look at my life, it is really becoming and it's being influenced, even my work in the dentistry, whether it's dentistry, functional medicine, or whatever I do, life itself is, is influenced by every one of these disciplines. So it, it's hard to recap that. Um, I'm going to bring us back to first why and how I got into ABA. So um, Narayan was about five years old and he had moved from a, a classroom uh, which was more a generalized teaching classroom to an ABA classroom. And around then his health his health has always been a, a huge concern, and um, so we brought his services home. And that is when we got introduced to Dr. Carbone. Uh, Dr. Carbone was in Florida, and he was moving to New York State around that time. And um, we had the opportunity to um, to be uh, our son had an opportunity to uh, join his team and at, at his clinic. And I can tell you, at that time, I was a full-time mom. I would drive my son to the clinic, sit with him, get trained. And it was the first time that I got to see behavioral sciences. Now, I, have been, I had been a pediatric dentist 
and in organized dentistry uh, for a while before that. And behavior management is a very big part of a pediatric dentist's life. And shout out to all my friends there because they do an incredible job. Our job begins after penetrating the skin or the tooth structure, which isn't very pleasurable or fun or something one can desensitize. It's a really hard job that pediatric dentists and pediatricians do um, because they're dealing with a triad. We're dealing with our own personal responding. We're dealing with the child's responses and then the parent or parents that come with them. So it isn't easy. So sitting in the clinic, um, watching uh, Dr. Carbone's team work and so methodically with the crazy data collection processes and uh, the detail to attention in the programming was something I had never seen in my life before. And to me, this was an accident or a way to find my purpose. I don't know. But this opportunity was really amazing. So Narayan stayed in this program and made incredible gains. Uh, we also had a way to customize it to his health so he could get his nutrition, he could get his rest, um, because he had a lot of medical issues. And in between and out of hospitals, you know, he would get excellent education. And as I saw him um, improve, um, and his behaviors and new skills that he learned and how he learned, I started to incorporate some of those ideas and procedures um, just haphazardly in my own work, and it was really incredible. So it was at that time I decided to go back and really get formal education, primarily for my son, because I realized that he would need this understanding and knowledge and in order to guide his program throughout a lifetime, I needed to become his primary care provider. Uh, and ultimately, all parents are primary care providers. So I wanted, um, as always, to get the training to max. And that's why I went back to it as a discipline. As I went through the program at Caldwell, you know, it, it, it was an amazing program, an amazing experience because in real time we had conversations um, and I learned the theory behind everything that the teachers uh, were working on with Navayan. So the practical without the practical application, just the theory itself would not have made any any um, have, would not have had any value. So the practical application at home was a great way for me to see how to put the procedures, the principles, and how could I bring it to my environment. Now I'm going to also take you back is uh, to the fact that my son has been hospitalized hundreds of times for different procedures. And I then got to uh, utilize many of these procedures myself in the hospital. At some point, there was a loss of this understanding whether I was actually learning it for my other patients or I was practicing it to get my son through the procedure. It almost happens organically both ways. I find myself taping for my son to teach other individuals and parents and in lectures of how something, um, a procedure could be incorporated in real time in, um, in a hospital procedure or how could I bring this back to my office. Um, 
so that's that's how I learned to do, and um, I, I I don't think one has to go through an entire discipline of applied behavior analysis to um, to practice it in dentistry. But I think there are some very important elements of applied behavior analysis that are so key for um, any professional, whether in healthcare or or related fields, to understand. So things like um, principles of reinforcement, uh, punishment has a very bad rap, but it really is such a great way of learning too. Uh, and it, it's not in the sense of how we deliver punishment in terms of pain, but it's a natural teaching process, you know, what we avoid. For instance, I'm going to give you one example, something that I had never thought of. Positive reinforcement, positive reinforcement was such a large part of my previous journey that it never occurred to me that in a dental office or in the medical environment because of pain or uncomfortable procedures that a child may engage in escape-based responses. How about planning procedures around that. It had never occurred to me. So these were just some important facts that um, I was able to access, and I would not have known this without my son's journey. You talk a lot about the motivation and the emotion that other parents can relate to as to why it became a passion. A lot of other practitioners, though, would See definitely the value and in interdisciplinary collaboration, but with you, you kind of embrace all of that. You're like, I can cross these boundaries because I had the motivation, the need to learn on a private, you know, personal level. But then, as a as a professional behavior analyst, yes, but working in the capacity, you know, in dentistry and in hospitals, you really embody, I think, the idea of what it means to blend the science with other sciences. I like to talk about behavior analysis as a science that helps other sciences. You talked about going into the clinic and having home-based services. How old was your son when that started? And do you mind just telling us a little bit of... of sure. Like sure. Narayan must have been around... It's really hard. He's 22 now. So it's it's so hard to recall these facts, but he must have been about seven or eight when he started to get home-based services. Um, he had um, not been well for a while, and, and, and so certain events led to uh, seeking a, a reduced amount. You know how that a lot of children have 40-hour programs. His program was only 25 hours, but through the school district, we were able to get the home-based services around seven. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, I mean, of course, we'd always like to see early as can be, but it's it's nice when you can describe a program that can work with the medical needs that he had as well. Another connection to what you're saying is the mentioning of Dr. Vincent Carbone. He is someone who has gone around and done workshops and trainings, webinars, and has had his clinic, of course, and has really been an incredible disseminator of our science, you know, showing and teaching practitioners, but parents and caregivers as well, what it looks like to achieve change. Let me tell you, shadowing him is 
I would say is the reason how I got into applied behavior analysis. I think before that, I'm going to be honest with you, Amanda, uh, our science, our field is so incredible, but it is a difficult field. The language is hard to understand, and uh, a lay person cannot access it. In fact, one of my own personal commitments, and I started to do that this year, is um, make it user-friendly, you know? bring highlighting the principles and the procedures which are so impactful, but making it uh, very user-friendly as well as language-friendly. Um, I, I feel that this year I made a lot of changes in my own personal lecture style. And, um, and and decided to include a lot of day-to-day -day examples on how to bring it. So I, I think for me, if that experience had not happened, um, I don't think I would have realized um, that there is another science. You know, honestly, life presents with a lot of our experiences, and some of these obstacles could be such a growth opportunity for us to access new sciences. Um, sitting in hospitals, Amanda, I sat for days sometimes in hospitals with my son, and the only way to come out of the four walls was to either run away to Hawaii, or I would have to find a different way, and I found a way is through my brain, just through studying. I, I read, I wrote, and I started to learn disciplines and uh, to access information in its entirety. And I think that shaped my behavior of learning. I cannot imagine not being in school at any one point. Now, I run a full-time uh, practice. I lecture four or five times around the country. I don't take any more than that because I really give my heart and soul to it. Um, but um, with this, I'm always in some type of school. Uh, part of the reason is, the more I'm in school, I find I get like a global view of life. I think that there was dentistry, then came pediatric dentistry, and as, we, as I joined behavior, I started to incorporate that. And as I'm looking at lifestyle medicine, that's yet another aspect that I'm adding. The one part that I did struggle with is um, respondent conditioning or respondent behavior. So there's a really neat story to this. I remember my second class was behavior and learning, and Professor Progar was teaching this class. It was an excellent class. And um, I, I was so excited about ABA. My life was only ABA, all day ABA, 24 hours ABA. And I remember asking him one day, is in dentistry, is it often behavior or is it respondent behavior? Uh, and he may not even remember this. And he gave me this look that, oh, my gosh, the, the, the answer is so broad. It's so complex. And I couldn't understand, and I had spent a lot of time in the evening just wondering, I wonder which is it. And depending on the class I took, it was operant or respondent. You know, I still don't have the full answer because I spend most of my days in the pit with my little children. So it's not like I'm with behavior analysts all day, but I read or study at least two to three hours a day, whether it's through podcasts, through audibles, or through books. And I can see why he struggled with that answer. 
And I think where I'm at is that in medicine or dentistry, where we are dealing with human behavior and procedures that may penetrate the skin, this pain and discomfort, fear, anxiety, you know, the answer is respondent and, you know, operant. The child may feel worry, which we then call anxiety, which is expressed as increased heart rate and other such. And and then the child learns that when I feel this way, I can engage in a set of behaviors to escape it, right? My work up until recently was very focused on um, uh, obviously what we learn observable and measurable behavior because that was something tangible we can change or I work towards it using the principles and procedures. But I have recently become very, very intrigued and uh, absorbed in understanding respondent behavior, respondent conditioning. I think that uh, as I progress and learn about neuroscience and neuroscientific procedures and advances in through functional medicine, I'm becoming even more intrigued by the value of neurophysiology in behavior. And if you were to ever ask me, Pranima, after functional medicine, where are you going next? I think it's towards neuroscience and understanding the human body, the internal environment, which right now I feel like I'm severely lacking in um, and that we, I think, are at a time in um, technical advances that we probably are going to be able to measure with better um, instruments the internal environment, we can, and I'm very excited about understanding neurophysiology and behavior. This year, 2019, as we move into the next decade, is has been an exciting year for me. I finally found my purpose. Um, and by purpose, what I mean is what do I bring into the world? And for me, it is teaching health. I want to empower my little children with the skills that they need for a lifetime in the healthcare, um, in healthcare uh, situations that they will need, and to the extent that they can. Because health is primary, it is our birthright, and our children struggle with it. And my emphasis is on the word teach. When you think about the word doctor, doctor, the word has its origins in a Latin verb. I think docere or docere, D-O-C-E-R-E, which really means to teach. So in, in essence, a doctor should be able to teach, and we've moved away, and we're always fixing things. So I really want to bring that back to, to my tribe and teach health, um, teach health tolerance to procedures, teach, and, and those who have learned, move it up a notch, and talk about lifestyle factors, so everything around health. So teaching health is is my purpose. Um, one of my favorite uh, populations to work with, and that will be the focus of my self-study, is babies. You know, they are born with um, hardwired with certain set of responses, and I want to understand those, why, how, and um and I feel somewhere there is the answer, or at least it'll lead me to that next step in neurophysiology and behavior. When I grow up, I want to be just like you. I'm so impressed. 
I think you did a really nice job summarizing what maybe kind of stumped your professor at the time, which is that it is a combination of both. And I think actually for a lot of our listeners, it's probably something that's easy to relate to. We've all been in a dentist chair, right? Even if we have a, a, a positive history or we haven't had a lot of painful experiences as humans, we've all experienced pain. So it's, it doesn't even have to be something that's happened in the dentist chair for people to exhibit signs associated with anxiety and fear. And then to realize that that's your sort of starting place when you meet a, a patient or a client sometimes, you're already dealing with them in an elevated emotional situation. And that's right. not that's not that different from um, some of the times in which we're working with children with autism or uh, individuals with other disabilities because there's often a lot of things happening that we aren't aware of that may be not able to be clearly stated to us. And um, one, I remember having a professor who said, you know, you're always coming in at this sort of really heightened level, but we're focusing on what we can observe and what we can see. And sometimes that's, you know, an aggression or that might be trying to escape out of the room or out of the, the chair, for example. And so it does the become... Only- only difference, if I may add, is that, you know, in, in, in education, the child is in a classroom for a year or for years, right, depending on their ability and how they're moving forward. When they come to, let's say, a hospital environment or they come to a dentist, we have like literally 20 minutes to 40 minutes and you've got to get your procedures done. It's not like the child or the parent is coming back to that chair every day from 8 in the morning or 9 in the morning to 3 and then the bus bus goes home. So it's really almost like a Navy SEALs act. You've got to happen right there in the chair with an outcome. You see where I'm coming from, Amanda? Oh, absolutely. I definitely think that there's there's many, many differences as well. And I think you bring up a really important part. It's when we think about history of reinforcement or punishment or our own learning histories, how many opportunities do we have in a dentist chair? And when we do, what are the odds that it's going to be completely comfortable, right? It's pretty zero okay. to, to, to little to zero there. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, you definitely bring up, I mean, of course, um, some of the additional added, um, the urgency with it too. I mean, when we're also thinking about sometimes the funding source for these procedures, I'm sure it comes up like, you know, a cleaning, you get one Absolutely. or two a year. You don't get 15 chances often. Exactly. Right? So, yeah. so th- this is, this is where, um, you know, in the past, uh, since my graduation, you know, I went through a transformation right after graduation. I came out super energized that, oh my goodness, um, I have to be collecting loads of data. Without that, my my practice is not legit or I'm not using the principles adequately. And I think that I, I found my peace. Uh, you know, I do collect data. I do a lot of uh, videotaping, so I have permanent products. Uh, two, I, I do an initial probe. And ultimately, I realized that I have to practice dentistry, right? So the way I, and if I had to teach it and energize the rest of my profession and to say that, look, there are these great principles, you have them already, but let's learn them, how to utilize them better in our chair. In order to get them to do it, I had to make this user-friendly, easy to understand, and 
effective. So my work has been on how do I reduce the time in the chair, bring the biggest impact, and yet have behavior change. Now, this could not happen without empowering my parents. So being a parent, I think that has been um, – that has been, I think, a gift. Narayan was a gift in that sense because I got to experience the highs and lows of my own personal life, bring it to my practice. And being a parent who's already gone through it, I can relate to other parents and energize them and train them in a way that is very different. I think uh, we, it's almost like a mutual understanding, um, and I really bring and empower my parents. So what I do is I, number one, try to get to know my client even before they get there. Just like I wanted to know all about you, Amanda, before I got on the uh, Behavior Babes um, uh, podcast. Um, it was important, you know? I, I, I And it was incredible to hear all the people and how you interview and how much um, how much openness you bring to the field and I loved it so I get to know my clients even before they get there because once my little people uh, especially with autism and other behavioral disorders get there there's no time to engage in talking which is what we do we take our medical histories at and on that day of the appointment so that is not we do that before it also allows me to then arrange my environment to make the best possible outcome happen. And what I mean by that is keep reinforcers, known reinforcers, or advise parents uh, to bring those known reinforcers. I rearrange uh, my environment from a sensory perspective. So I bring a lot of attention to sensory. And I'm not talking about sensory integration. I'm talking about um, the part of the DSM that talks about hyper and hyposensitivity uh, to, to different stimuli in the environment. I want to know ahead of time how the child responds to loud sounds. If they don't like loud sounds, which one? I go into details on which tastes do they like, what textures, what are they snacks they like, what are certain smells I want to know about. Um, uh, their their behaviors and it's not about a judgment whether someone can bite me or push me or kick me I just want to be aware and prepared for it is there a behavior plan for it so I really do a lot of that investigation we call behavior interviewing over time and I arrange the environment I put that actually on my uh, on my um, office um, where we have the our our computers, and so when the patient's chart shows up, because I won't be able to remember of my 5,000 patients, I am then able to recap that conversation that I've had with the caregiver or the parent and bring those reinforcers, start my uh, appointment with presenting those reinforcers, that it is, it is uh, Disney World here every day, you know? Um, I also have an opportunity to set expectations with parents, you know, to, to explain to them it is their work that is important, their involvement, because I pre-teach certain skills that the children need to know. So it is about introducing the mirror uh, in their mouth and practicing with them. I have video models up on my website that parents can go and take a look at. So it's really the parents' work. So empowering parents is a very big part of my job, and they're already burdened with 
so much to teach from toileting to other important daily living skills. But here's where healthcare comes in. I think that healthcare is the first environment that a child accesses or should access. It is always going to be a part of their lives. And if anything I have learned through my son is health rules, because without health, we have nothing. Education does not matter if we don't have health. Yet, our kids have the hardest time in healthcare environments. So, you know, in explaining it to them, uh, this way, I really find that partnering with parents has been extremely helpful. Of course, even though parents and therapists have taught several skills, you know, generalization can be an extremely challenging moment. Um, and that is where, you know, understanding the principles uh, and certain procedures uh, is very valuable and how to incorporate it. And like I always say, N is equal to one, meaning that child is unique and that is, and everything about that child matters. Their responding each visit may be very different and adapting to it is really important and addressing it is important. Um, and so each, each visit is very unique. But these are some of the major elements of what I have brought from behavior analysis and I have incorporated into. And it's hard to say that there is one protocol. The protocol changes very quickly if somebody falls on the floor and, and now we have to get them back on up to finish up with the cleaning. But, um, you know, it, it, it's sort of like you're working in crisis all the time and finding a way to reduce that time in the chair is and that is my effort. Definitely working in crisis there. You mentioned the the N of one, and that really resonates with behavior analysts because we're constantly looking at not whether or not that person's doing better than their classmate, but whether or not they're making progress from the last time they came and were right. in the dentist chair. So when we when we talk about that, I think that that is really relatable. But I imagine in other medical professions, that's not the case. It's usually looking at randomized controlled studies. How, do you, how did you get to that place of seeing the value of the end of one? Or how do you reconcile? I guess I'm just curious if you have other professionals um, in your healthcare profession who, how, how do you get them to see the value of end of one as well? I think, I think that we... You know, it's interesting because when we look at, I think randomized control trials are, are important when we look at drugs and certain procedures, I suppose. But I also think that when we are dealing with a patient, most providers do look at N equal to 1. But most providers are looking at N equal to 1 based on their medical signs and symptoms. They're not looking at behavior. So I think from me, from a behavioral perspective, that person and their set of characteristics and how and their previous experiences will be so different from the next person coming in that I have really started to narrow in and highlight. It actually became a very important, my favorite slide of year 2019 is N equal to one. I had never thought or taught in any lecture that N is equal to 1 because it, it almost felt like it was understood or 
I'd never thought of actually saying it. But this year, as I was speaking at um, at a Greater New York conference, um, I remember putting in that slide N equal to one, and I think it was the best way of saying each person in that chair is unique. And when we design their medical plan, their dental plan, we also need to design their behavior plan. It's not one big uh, protocol that applies to everybody. It is about what applies to that child or that person because their experiences may be completely different and their responding may be part of that experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense. I also like how you mentioned, and I'm just going to go back a, a couple of minutes, to when you're in these high crisis situations, it's not just the client or the patient, the child's behavior that we're targeting or looking at or considering. It's the parent as well as your own. And I yes. think as, as a, I'll speak from a provider standpoint, we often are not giving ourselves time to think about our own feelings, thoughts, experiences, and how that relates to the environment. Like you mentioned, wanting to escape the hospital, and the only way to escape was to learn, to read, to take a journey that way. I just thought that that was a really powerful point, and I wanted to, I just didn't want to glaze over it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I have to tell you, it has saved me, and uh, I would not be who I am without my two children, because each of them have brought these experiences that have honestly just shaped all of me, and especially the learning behavior. I want to talk a little bit about the emotional responding, our personal emotional responding to a particular, let's say, um, incident. So uh, about a a few months ago, I had a patient, and I was doing a very simple procedure, and um, she she didn't have any, um, you know, specific diagnosis other than, I think, just being super sensitive, which I think a lot of children are. Um, And especially when you add in fear, you know, it, it all ties in. Anyway, she was really upset and was starting to become non-compliant. And I remember uh, clearly she took her glasses and threw it across the room, you know. And the parent didn't really say much, probably from just the shock of it or maybe they have been, you know, they've accessed such behavior with the child before. And I can tell you I had my mask on and thank God for my dark skin that there were no color changes, which was, you know, which, I think would have been quite apparent based on my own internal environment or the responding that I had. I took about 30 seconds just watching um, and I and I just watched it and I realized something immediately that I teach in my lectures about behavior is something a person does, right? Um, and if we just look at behavior without any emotions attached to it and you look at it as you increase or decrease it like a dial by utilizing certain principles and procedures, it's pretty cool. So I decided to not respond at all and I decided that, well, I'm just going to put, you know, put that extinction and I, I, I asked the child very gently, would you kindly get up and bring those glasses back and sit down? And, of course, the child was not very happy with me, and the parent was very quiet, uh, and I appreciated that very much. And I just kept my demand. Would you please get up and get my glasses? These were house glasses. They weren't his glasses. And uh, so the child went there, picked it up, 
sat down and with a little bit of crying, you know, we got the procedure completed. For me, these are not small situations. I usually will come home and write these incidents down and really try to analyze what happened there. What I really learned about my responding, if I take away my emotional responding to someone's um, noncompliance, I find myself very effective. And I think that has been very powerful for me after being in the behavioral sciences that this is pure behavior. I can, it, It's sort of like this is exactly what I have to do. I cannot add to it. I cannot add my own responding to it. There's another aspect to it. When we are upset, we also have internal chemical changes, and that's when neurophysiology comes in. You know, uh, we, we release cortisol. There's adrenaline and noradrenaline. And these all have an effect on our own body, and part of that is how fast and quick we can think and work. It impairs our thinking. So I do find that keep looking at it very much as pure behavior without much attachment, if I may use the word attachment, has really helped me uh, utilize my principles much better. I think being neutral, right, and telling ourselves yeah. inside, like, I know this is going to work. I've seen it work before. There are some strategies, right? We might self-talk. We might just rely on our history. Yes, but also the understanding that perhaps there's a reason for why the child may be, uh, you know, uh, throwing this, but I can yet work them through it by either changing my the way I am doing things but not responding or mirroring his response with exactly that similar kind of behavior outrage. So that has that has helped me a lot. Absolutely. When we see that our behaviors and our response to behaviors can intensify a situation, can increase the anxiety and the tension, we definitely want to behave in a way that lowers that, that models for others around us calmness. But you also mentioned writing things down. And I'd like for you to, if you wouldn't mind, elaborate on that a little bit, because I think we often ourselves, as as the practitioner in that place, um, we ignore a lot of things that we wouldn't maybe in daily life, um, and it really helps mm-hmm. us in that situation. But but what does what does writing do for you? So writing does a lot. Uh, when when I am practicing, I keep a little a notepad and a pencil, and my staff is on the ball. So as I'm working with a parent or a child, uh, an interaction, something about that interaction. Uh, is, is intriguing or something I want to give it more thought, which I think can translate into a new slide for a future lecture. I actually have, if I, if I have my gloves on, I will uh, transcribe, my, my uh, staff will transcribe it, leave it on my desk. I then have a little box I call the worry box, and I bring that note and I put it in there. And when on the weekends I get some time, I'll take out a couple of those notes and really think about that situation, what happened, what did I do, what could I have done better, or what were certain principles that I were using, what other procedures could I have used that is easily adapted in my environment. I mean, there's thousands of beautiful procedures, but not all of them I can use. I just have to use simple, quick 
adaptable to how could I use this? What did I learn from that parent? There's so much bi-directional learning. So I'll give you one example. I was um, treating uh, a patient with autism one time, and it was his first cleaning. He came from a very reputable school around, and he had never had a cleaning before, um, at least not without being held down. I really work on independence a lot in my chair. Um, so the parent was so overwhelmed, so relieved after half hour, she said to me um, that, oh, my gosh, you know, this is the first cleaning. And she was so excited. And here I was right out of school. And I was like, I was so excited. Yes. And I used this principle. And, you know, we did this and we did. And I thought I was I was trying to help her understand all the conceptual things that I had done. You know, she looked at me and she said, no, you made him feel safe. He was so safe in that chair. And so, again, I got the pen out and I wrote it because something inside just said this was something I needed to understand. What was it that she meant? I really allow bi-directional learning. I learn from my parents. I learn from my, my patients every day. And then that's a growth mindset I think we have to go in with if we have to make progress. And what I brought back from that, and as I thought about it, is from her perspective, safe meant that he was not jumping out of his skin. No one was holding him down. It was a label that she had for her reality, her set of pictures of what a dental visit should look like for her son. And I think that was important. So I, I, I think that those notes really helped me understand. Um, it helps me capture that moment and think about that very important moment, and I can analyze it and either chuck it or it gets included into this big bank of slides that I have that I take from. So it's, it's really powerful because we're thinking all day long, and we, we tend to tell ourselves, oh, oh, you know what, I, I'll remember that. You know what, we can't remember what we ate that afternoon. So writing it down, having it black and white, and then thinking about it and making a decision to check it or to incorporate it is huge. And that is how I found so many practical ways and creative ways of including our procedures in dental or medical offices. It's pretty cute. It's pretty neat. Well, I think to a parent, too, when, when we think about the social validity of what you were doing, um, yes. the words she used to describe that was safe. But what that was, of course, is a collection of of behaviors, right? Nobody's holding her son yes. down. He's not crying or, or, you know, hitting or other things like that. And we might say, oh, I placed this on extinction and I reinforced that. And then because of his history um, and really yes. what it equates to the family is he was safe and he felt comfortable and this wasn't traumatizing for the parent. And exactly. um, in many ways, there's no bigger compliment I would, I would think that they could make. Um, but yeah, we, you know, I, I think back how I right out of grad school was telling someone that's a positive re that's an example of positive reinforcement. Do you know, right <laughs> now you ignore him, you're, you're placing yes. that behavior on extinction and nobody cares. I mean, you know, which is sad. Exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> in the real world, the most impact, I think, uh, over time, is when I have it, is when I, I speak lay people's language, but yet 
I'm utilizing the principles and procedures. And I keep saying principles and procedures because that's really what it is, you know. And, and we're using the science, but using it, lay people's work. Look, look, behavior is lawful. We know that, right? So everyone has access, has been able to access success at some point or access re- reinforcement at some point. But when we show them the way that this is how you can get more of it or more reliably is it. But the words are sometimes for parents, I think, and for, I think, medical providers, dental providers, I think it's really important to simplify our language and make it more user-friendly. Um, there's a and I think I think people are becoming very um, very aware of that in our community. There's a lot of talk. I hear that on many of the lists and Facebook groups that I'm on. That you know we're starting to use words like honest and, um, and and compassion. There's so much work on compassion being done. So, well, right. I, I do think there's value. Yeah. It's showing that change and creating the place for conversations. And I've really enjoyed our conversation so far. You've mentioned a website and you mentioned video modeling and examples. I want to make sure that I give you the opportunity to tell people what that website is or how they find access to you and your resources. Sure. Actually, it's just my uh, my uh, Bergen Pediatric Dentistry is my website. And on my Bergen Pediatric Dentistry um page, there are video models which we are going to update shortly, I would say in the next couple of months. Uh, I have simplified a cleaning visit because that's like the basic, it's the foundation of dentistry is, is sitting in the dental chair. You know, if you can sit in the dental chair at 20, open your mouth so someone can take a look at at least one can tell if you have cavities or not, if you have to be, you have to, uh, you know, undergo any advanced uh, management procedure like sedation or something. That's like the basic, but a lot of children aren't able to do it. So I have several video models uploaded. I have sample social stories that parents print out and can work with their children. And what I also try to do in when I am training parents is I try to use the behavioral skills uh, training uh, type of methodology where I show the parents what I want them to do at home, how to practice it. I even give a number sometimes just for a very prescriptive sake and, and then have them do it and provide feedback. And that really works well. So they can then go to the website and show the child um, how to watch the video. Now, a lot of children are not going to see or go through the entire video, as you can imagine, but it could be the sound. It could just be my voice. It could be the color of my coat. It could be the color of the chair. Anything they pick up and anything the parent can do is helpful for that provider at that next visit. So it's up on my website. Up on my website, you'll also see my uh, cooking videos, Amanda, yeah, I was just clicked on it, and I said, I see from Chef H's Kitchen right there. Do you want to yeah. tell listeners more about that? Sure, sure. So when I was, it's an, it's a, it's a cute story. When I was moving uh, from India in 1986 uh, to United States, I, I told my very Indian mom that, Ma, uh, you've got to teach me how to cook. I mean, I know how to do a lot of things. I'm a great sportswoman, but I don't know how to cook. And she was really mad with me because she, uh, you know, a good Indian girl should know how to cook and clean, at least at that time, not anymore. And 
So she said, you know, you have no cooking skills. No Indian man would marry you. So we laugh about it because I am married now, 30 years, and she lives with me and I'm a good cook. Um, so basically, those are video models. Uh, when when we were studying video models uh, modeling in um, at Caldwell, I I I I remember um, thinking about how else could I incorporate that into my life. So I decided to make video models for parents uh, around around cooking. You know what we eat. Uh, not only affects our teeth but our body. So we we have a lot of discussions of diet with parents. And what I notice with parents is the same challenge of not having enough time and perhaps not having the skills. So I decided to make video models, and they have become uh, a large part of a conversation when they are with me. And and those conversations leads to um, our the child's macronutrients, micronutrient conversations, just so much. There's so many ways we can take it, but those are up there. And some of my children are little chefs, so they also model. Um, they actually have made some recipes from there. They'll send me pictures of cooking and we exchange. And it's really cute. It's, 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 it's just another way of connecting with my tribe and um, also showing them to personal exemplar that, uh, that I, I, I practice what I you know, preach every day. Well, it seems like you do. And I wonder how you find all the time to do all the <laughs> things that you're doing. And it sounds like you, you have a long history of of studying and learning and doing. I think doing is a big part of, of what's going on with you as well. I wanted to also ask you before we end the podcast today, if you had any other resources, references, information, shout outs, any sort of parting advice for our, our listeners, I want to give you the opportunity to share that. So my shout out is to my pediatric dental friends. Uh, and, and, and to tell them that they are doing a smashing job with our kids. And the fact that they want to learn more is fantastic. Each year, it is getting brighter and better. Um, I don't have a specific resource that combines what we have discussed. And I'm hoping that one day I will find the time to write this resource. I have already begun writing the outline this year. Uh, but um, it is not there. But I think that if one is in the medical field, they can look at the behavioral literature, particularly simple parent um, ABA type books, um, because they're a little bit more simplified. But I think the best thing a provider can do is to actually follow a patient and their team, because we can read all the books we want. It's about the application and the creativity that is important. And I find that that personal um, experience and that practical application was really the gold nugget in my, in, my, um, in my journey. So I think from a provider's perspective, reading a book, but also getting the practical experience on how these procedures are implemented in day-to-day life. Um, I think that for my ABA colleagues, um, just simplifying the language, making it accessible to all, because we have a great science here, and I think principles of ABA and these procedures are incorporated in any aspect, not just autism. It's just in about everything we do, but if we can simplify it and make it user-friendly, I think there is 
so much, so so many more applications waiting for us. I also think that as behavior analysts, we come out of a program and, um, you know, we start working with influencing everyone's behavior or people and children around us. But I think that there's value. If there was a CE that could be developed like mandatory CE where one examines and influences their own behavior, self-behavior for at least one CE uh, a year or every two cycles, I think that's important because until we examine and formally work on our own behavior, we don't really get that perspective. And I really have found value in it. And I find myself um, really collecting data on and changing or adding something to my repertoire of behaviors. And part of that is this whole learning project. So that's it. You know, I think um, those are some just facts near and dear to my heart that I wanted to share. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing about your personal journey, you know, sharing about your family as well as your professional um, path. I'm excited, so excited to have met you, and I hope this is just the beginning of our conversation because I think we have a lot that we could create or make happen or publicize or disseminate, and that's, of course, my passion is all the amazing work that all of the people in the world, <laughs> whether they're behavior analysts mm -hmm. or not, are doing and trying to create conversations where we we gain insight into that. People who listen to this show are going to be inspired by the work that you've done and the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And it also makes me think that I might need to update uh, some resources on my Behavior Bay website, and I'll be reaching <laughs> out to you to see if you can help me do that with some of the areas you talked Absolutely. about. Absolutely. People should hope to see that expanded in the near future, and they can check that out by going to www.behaviorbabe.com. Thank you.